Castel de Nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. Shredu rou pian. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Welcome back to another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. And my guest today is the chef owner of Blue Hill in Manhattan and Blue Hill at Stone Barns in Potomac Hills, New York, with both restaurants distinguished with Michelin stars. In 2014, he wrote the third plate. In 2022, he ranked 25th best, re- best chef in the world by Best Chef Awards. And the year before that, 22nd. He's one of the biggest advocates of farm to table movement, also giving a voice to farmers and for us to have a better understanding of sustainability in the kitchen moving forward. Dan Barber, welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm moving down in the ranks. What'd you say? 25? I didn't know that. No, I'm I mean, 25. What? It's okay. Hey, 25 in the world. That's good. That's I'm awesome. 25, but what happened at 22? I like 22 better. I'll call them. I'll give them a call. I like uh, 20. 22 is a good number. I I always start this question on podcast. Have you ever been to Portugal? No, I've always wanted to go. You should go. It's beautiful. Let me know when you go. Okay. okay? Then let me know. Who was your inspiration growing up in the kitchen? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm still growing up. I am. I mean, I, I had so many, uh, you know, the one who maybe uh, lasted the longest as an inspiration is Ducasse. You know, I mean, when I was a line cook, he was um uh chasing his third star in monaco in uh louis cans and 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 i used i went down there as a young line cook um uh at i was in paris and i i finished up my my uh, job my year for with a, with a restaurant michelle rostong and i went to celebrate in monte carlo and i stayed in a youth hostel and i went went to i spent all my money on um on a lunch at ducas i remember i can recite for you the entire meal I cried when I had the pea soup. Pea soup come in telephone. It was these these very special peas, and they have the most unbelievable soup. And it was like a four hour meal. But and when I walked out, I was going down the stairs of Louis Gans, and who was come running up the stairs, pulled up in his big red jeep, and running up the stairs to get into the kitchen was Alan Ducasse. And I was like, you know what? I'm never going to be back here again. I, I this like how many times in my life am I, you know? gonna be able to go up and say hello to Ducasse and I was just like I went for it I went right up to him and I said uh Monsieur Ducasse you know you're my biggest inspiration and I just enjoyed him you know for our meal and, blah, blah, blah. and he said well why don't you come back tomorrow as my guest <laughs> and uh I was like yeah man all right so I changed my my TGV and my stayed an extra day at the youth hostel and I uh I went for lunch the next day on as an invitation to Monsieur Ducasse And a young, a young Dan Barber, when you were like 12, 13, in the family, who was the good cook? Well, I had my aunt who was a great cook and, and French trained and, and just phenomenal technique and uh, flavor, flavor. Technique. But, but, you know, I credit my appreciation of my aunt with uh, my father, who was just a terrible cook. <laughs> and my mother died when I was very young. So my dad, you know, did some cooking for us and. I mean, it was just God, obviously. It was painful. Bit painful. And though the painful experience of eating my dad's food was consistent, without it, <laughs> I would never have really appreciated my aunt and France because French, because it, it, my, my aunt was a great cook and, and opened my mind to, to what food could be. But it was also, it, it, it felt to me that French was the way to get that because yeah. my aunt was so steeped in in french cooking so you know that's how it fused and then i went on and became very immersed in french cuisine can you be a good chef if you don't know where your ingredients come from 
I don't think so. I mean, you're, you're certainly kind of a dumb chef, but um, you know, if you if you're, I mean, you, you got to define good for me. But uh, you know, can you cook at a high level uh, and succeed? Uh, the answer is, you know, I don't think so. Uh, increasingly, uh, I think that was true for a long time, but increasingly, diners are too savvy, and your cooks are too savvy. You know, people just know too much now, and the idea about food grown in the right way organically and locally and you know regionally is becoming too important as part of the menu of understanding and the menu of understanding requires you to be to jive with the times in the same way that in the 60s you could use cream and butter at abandoned you know you can't really do that today you, know, you got jive with the times so part of jiving with the times is understanding that the world has changed and people are expecting food that has a has a story has a cd attached to it um and if you don't have the story uh you're you're missing a key ingredient uh in today's lexicon anyway when you when have you noticed that shift the interest people had for actually to know where people where food comes from well, and all I, of I that? Mean, it start, you know i think it, it, it nicely for me coincides with the start of my restaurant which is 22 years ago when you know uh blue hill is named after blue hill farm which is a family farm in the berkshires and it you know, it was, uh, it, 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 it's not like there weren't chefs like Alice Waters before me, um, mm -hmm. but we were saying it in a slightly different way and, and we were doubling down on it. It seemed exciting and new. If we were to open up Blue Hill today with that same rubric, I think people would sort of laugh. I mean, I mean, you, it happens every, if you look at, you know, opening restaurants on any website or whatever, and they, they invariably half of them say, you know, the chef is committed to local farms and seasonal ingredients. I'm like, oh, God, like, what does that even mean? You know, <laughs> yes. um, but 20 years ago, you said it and it was actually, you know, it was fresh and new. I do think in the course of last quarter century, the idea of these ingredients coming from a local source that, you know, uh, and knowing how it was grown and who was growing it is um, much more part of the mainstream uh, food culture. Do you think in that same token, people are using that new label, as you said, like new restaurants open the whole farm to table, but that's not necessarily true, but it just sounds better? I mean, I don't I don't know. I haven't done an investigation, but it uh, it may be true, but it it feel it sounds empty. And yes, it sounds like a marketing play. What's the importance? You mentioned a little bit the Blue Hills Farm. What's the importance of the Blue Hills Farm for you? Because I know it's a family thing. And when was that interest of farming started? It was growing up. Well, very farming was before cooking because I was I was working the farm at Blue. Mm -hmm. I, that was how I spent my summers taking care of the cows and pasturing the cows and really stocking up on hay for the for the winter. So that that interest predates all interest in cooking. In fact, in some ways, cooking was the progression from the interest in farming. Do you think you're a curious person in general? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope I am. Well, I'm I just saying because, you know, people, you know, I was doing my research and talk with some people and you try, it's always right. You always try to get an answer for everything, which is a good thing, right? Where this comes from and try to to research deeper and deeper and deeper. My question was asked, was actually, what do you do to turn off your brain? If you have to turn off your brain. You know, I mean. I don't know. I don't really know what you mean about turning off your brain because it's, it, you know, like if you're when, when you go when you go to bed, can you rest without thinking? Yeah. Like no, some people I'm pretty, carry. I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, I carry all that. Yeah, I got, yeah. I got, I got a truckload of crap on my back when I go to bed. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know when the thing is when you can when you can, you know, unplug and relax. I mean, I I I, tr I have to work at it, and I, what's helped a lot is having kids, mm -hmm. uh, because 
I just don't want to be the guy who's checking texts while I'm hanging out with my kids. You know, I just don't yeah. want to be that guy. So that sort of forces you to just kind of sit back and unplug because you don't want to be an influence of uh, of social media on them. You know, what's the biggest shift you think high end restaurants or restaurants in general? They have to take like your restaurant maybe after COVID. What's the biggest shift after COVID? Yeah, that you realize that okay, we got to change here some stuff. I mean, I think it's the envi- the the environment for workers for front of the house and back of the house because there was just that wake up that nobody wants to do it anymore. That hasn't gone away. It's gotten a little, little less pervasive, but man, the whole culture around working in the restaurant and um, and cooking in a restaurant is not what it was before COVID. That's for sure. And that's, you know, that's challenging. And I, that part has just been difficult. But on the other hand, you know, maybe long term for the industry, it's good because it, it forces the industry to reckon with uh, a quality of life and a culture that wasn't working for a lot of people and, yeah. and it forced change. And that, that could be a good thing. I mentioned in the beginning, you're a big advocate for farming, your local produce. Do you think restaurants are doing enough to support organic food and responsible farming? The answer is no, but I don't blame the chef or the restaurant because the economics of running the guy, the thing is so impossible. It's like you got three things. You got the rent, you got labor, and you got food. You yeah. know, and rents up until even now in cities anyway, are just continue to climb to crazy proportions. And hourly, you know, uh, uh labor is just continually frightfully expensive. So you know, what's left? Food. Yeah. And so a lot of restaurants just to make any money for, you know, a lot of investors, like a lot of them aren't owners. They haven't, you know, chefs aren't owners. They have investors and investors want a certain percent back. So where are you going to cut? You know, yeah. you cut them food. And I, I like, okay, I get it. You know, I don't know. I, I so feel so blessed that I'm not in that situation because being in that situation is impossible to get out of. And so I'm lucky. And I, I don't know that. So in answer to your question, I don't want to sit here and bemoan the, the fact that people aren't doing enough because uh, I'm in a very rarefied position to, to, to do something. I was talking with a chef. It was last week episode. Um, he's a Portuguese chef. And I asked him what had to change. And he actually said he was very honest. He was like, hey, things are getting expensive. You know, protein is getting expensive. So he said, you just start putting more vegetables on the menu. As much as. Yeah, sure. we, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's yeah. They're very creative ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, as I think this chef will has found out or will find out, you know, you, you, you do create solutions that end up becoming problems too. Yeah. Doing vegetables on the plate, more vegetables on the plate, uh, isn't free. It's more labor, yeah, it's uh, true. you know, and labor's more expensive than food. So you end up getting hurt. It, it's, it's, it's just a challenge. And I, I'm not saying it's an impossible one. I don't think that's true. Uh, but I, I, I'm weary of giving critique. Uh, to other restaurants that operate on a on a slim to nominal profit margin, and for chefs in particular who largely aren't in control. Loaded question, but on a personal level, what is American cuisine today for you? Well, I'd like to define American cuisine as hyper local and regional. I don't think there is American cuisine. I think there's two hundred American cuisines, and they should all be carved out of a geographic ecological region and a geographic to a certain extent cultural region and those yeah. two things are talking to each other and that's what that's what's always developed a pattern of eating or what we call a cuisine 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when we say American cuisine, we fall into a big pitfall because, um, because you know, there's uh, there's 80 different types of, of radicchio lettuces in Italy. Uh, and Italy sits inside of New York State. So you, you, if you were to do this right, I think the way to do it and the way restaurants are headed and the way chefs are headed and clientele, you know, diners, is that you look at a region and you try and eke out and promote and celebrate what it is that that region can produce that other regions can't produce. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very individualistic. And we have this geographical expanse in the United States that's, that's incredible incredible and and it produces a host of different environments and and ecologies and you know and 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 diets or it should um you should be eating more vegetables and fruits in southern california where where i'm sitting in the hudson valley you know there's a real justification for eating meat mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it actually maybe not a lot in comparison to what we're eating now but having it as a steady part of your diet seems to be part of the responsibility. If you're going to keep farmers farming and you're going to really have a nod to the ecological conditions of where I am, uh, milk too would be one. I mean, there are many ways to look at it in a particular region, which is why you need the cultural input. You need the input of chefs, I think. Uh, but it's that kind of conversation I think is most interesting for the future of food. It's not a one, it's not a one cuisine. It's how many cuisines can you fit inside the puzzle that is America? What was your first memory of taste? Well, I remember my aunt scrambled some eggs for me over a double boiler. I was quite old. I was probably 12. So it's not a first memory, but it's a first memory that has stayed that I think has stayed with me and also informs me because she whisked these eggs over a double boiler and made the most beautiful scrambled eggs. I mean, scrambled eggs, I didn't think were possible to be labeled scrambled eggs. I didn't know what the hell I was eating, but they slid down my throat when I had when I had tonsillitis or I had um, strep throat. And it was like one of the greatest moments um, because it showed me the power of food and the power of cooking. It wasn't just food. It was the power of culinary craft and what it could do. Remember, I only appreciate that because my dad, uh, you know, cooked eggs that tasted like uh, my desk cardboard. So um, that's the key. Most underrated ingredient for you. Oh, man. Most underrated. I, I mean, I still think we're underrating onions, you know. I don't know. What's Onions? Better? Onion. What's better than an onion? That's just in, a, in every different way. Let's go to the other end. Overrated ingredient. I would say beef. You know, grain-fed beef. Grain-finished beef. Marbled beef. I don't get it. It's not delicious. I don't, I don't believe it. <laughs> okay. It's not. It's just not. And it's also, like, really easy to do. A, a grass-fed animal that's that's done with real craft and attention is one of the great proteins on the face of the earth. What is a strange food combination uh, when you're eating something can be on a sandwich, can be a snack that some people might look at you and think like, that's a little weird then. This happens a lot in the sweet and salty world. I've heard you just talk about scrambled eggs. Someone told me a couple of days ago, she puts Nutella on toast and then scrambled eggs on top. Some people do weird things out there from, you know, peppermint candy canes inside of dill pickles. What's your food combination that some people might think it's a little off? Yeah, I don't like that somebody would think was a little off. It's like, I don't, I don't get that. I got to come back to that. I don't, I don't do a lot of combinations that people would think was off. That's interesting. Okay. Well, think about that. Think about that one. one Best midnight snack for you. 
I've stopped eating midnight snacks. You know, I like it gets, screws me all up for sleep now. So, I mean, that was true a long time ago, but I just was too dumb to stay. Like after service, I would get home and just go nuts. I'd have a beer and all this stuff. I was like, mm-hmm. oh God, I'd wake up the next morning just wanting to die. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't have midnight, but I, I like, if I'm not, like if I'm, if I have a night off, I find myself having uh, peanut butter and uh, banana, you know, okay. like, like before I go to bed, just a little taste of something. I don't know why I have that craving. I love that combination. One meal you can have for the rest of your life. Well, it's the one I have every day. It's these fermented oats from this breeder who de- developed a high fat oat. It's a 14 and a half percent fatty oat. It tastes like um, like ice cream. And um, I mean, it's it's like the most delicious oats because oats that we, we eat, uh, you know, most oats that we eat are, are like less than 6% fat. The American Heart Association said you can't put a heart healthy label on oats unless it's below 6% fat. So in the 70s, all oat breeders went to low fat oats because they needed the heart healthy stamp of approval and it killed oats. So yeah. what I'm eating every day are these it's actually a new variety, but it's based on an old variety that our great grandparents were eating that's packed with fat, but the good fat is the cholesterol lowering fat. And it's the fat with all the beta glucans and, and oh man, the stuff is, just tastes like a dream. So that's what I'm, I, I started a seed company and I'm working with this breeder on, on, on the future of oats. Name of the podcast is turning chickens and breaking dishes. Those are actually two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? I mean, I, I, like it depends. Who are you asking? You know, my father or me? I'm or asking, my... I'm asking, well, yeah, I'm asking Dan to Dan. Dan to Dan. I mean, I would say neither. I don't know anything. I just, it's amazing what I don't know. I was just in a meeting with these cooks about carrots and, you know, conventionally grown carrots versus these organic grown carrots that we, we have the farmers keep in the field post frost and we pay them a lot of money. Keep always it's so much sweeter. So I was like, I want to show you what the difference is here. And we're going to take a bricks, you know, a, a bricks meter, a, a little gadget that measures parts per billion of sugar. And you'll see how much more sugar and, and flavor and nutrients are in these post frost carrots. And I squeeze it and and the, the conventional carrot grown in sand and sawdust in uh, Mexico, it was like twice the sugar content of our carrot that came from right outside our door and tasted better. And I was like, I know nothing. I know, so you're asking me at a bad time, but I know nothing. And in terms of exceeding expectations, like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see myself exceeding. I didn't, I, not that I had a lot of expectations, but I always feel a little bit like, um, you know, I'm just not doing enough with my time, you know? So I'm not, yeah, I'm not sitting here thumping my chest saying that I've, uh, I've, I've gone above and beyond. I don't really feel that way. At the end of the podcast, I tell my guests to sell their fish. In Portugal, if you say uh, to sell your fish, that means to talk about yourself. You know, if you just want to tell people where can, they can go to your restaurants, you know, if any projects out there, you just said that they started a seed company. Just sell your fish however you want then. Yeah, my fish is seeds, man. I'm like a mm-hmm. seed guy. I, I, I really believe the future of good food and happiness and health and environmental health uh, and equity and democratizing all of these ideas that we just talked about for the last half an hour, they're all rolled up into seed. Like if we get seed right, uh, vegetables, grains, legumes, the whole fruit, the whole thing, we change the world. If we try and change the world without changing seed, we're screwed. Because uh, right now, 65% of our food supply is owned by four chemical companies. 
uh, and and they own all all the seed companies, sixty five percent. And their motivation is terrible. So my fish, you know, it's like let's change the world of seeds, and we'll change the world. You still don't remember a, good, a strange food combination? Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking of something <laughs> that I, I I have some strange food combination. I was just thought of one or two that that were awful uh, that I have never tried again. I'll tell you that I did this steamed fish and grape sauce that was terrible. Uh, the last the Concord grapes, um, there's a terrible combination uh, that I thought would work with mustard. But I don't have a consistently, yeah, combination where I where, where that's go to. Dan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hey, man, uh, thank you for your uh, fast fire questions and, no. and good humor and uh, keep going strong. I can't wait to uh, follow you now. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Dan, for coming on the podcast. Don't forget, if you have any suggestions, any, any concerns, any questions, you can shoot me an email at info at davidgmartins.com. That's info at D-A-V-I-D-E-G-M-A-R-T-I-N-S.com. I'll be back next week. Make sure you're safe. Make sure you're happy. Keep on cooking. Adios.